from the Center for European Reform. You're listening to an audio recording from a recent CR event. If for some reason you can be there, you can catch up now. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the climb up and down the stairs to the wonderful cookies, which, 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 I, which I enjoyed. I would recommend the raisin. Uh, we're here for the second panel, which uh, we're going to sort of take a focus on clean energy markets across Europe, both what's needed to ensure interconnectivity, but also what's needed to ensure that it doesn't undermine our climate ambition and indeed contributes to achieving our goals. And I think this is an interesting question in the context of the sort of world around us, the external factors, but also the internal factors within the EU, where I think if you look at the policies of different member states, you actually see quite a lot of divergence, be it the nuclear phase-out in Germany, which, which causes some complications, to uh, Polish attitudes to coal. Um, I'm going to stop there, and uh, I will introduce each of our panel uh, when, before they speak. So we're going to begin with uh, Claire Moody, the MEP for the South West, about to enter a, a, a campaign, <laughs> uh, perhaps slightly un unexpected in perhaps the most exciting region of the EU, but also with a big focus on, I know, science, innovation and the like. So... Absolutely. Thank you, Sam. And uh, firstly, I'm going to have to give my apologies because, as Sam said, I am somewhat unexpectedly involved in an election campaign and consequently have a meeting I have to be at, which starts at one. I'm going to be late for it at one, but I, uh, I'm going to have to leave at one, sadly, uh, from this. Because actually, I'd be very interested to hear both the questions and uh, all of the other contributions from the other speakers. So... Um, what I was just going to talk about quickly is the um, energy union and uh, you know, how that is part of this debate. And I think inevitably as well actually also touch on some of the points that were touched on earlier in terms of the previous debate because I think they, you know, they cross over absolutely and one of those will be just transition. But... There are five kind of key headlines within the energy union uh, concept, and they all matter, and they all matter in this debate as well. So the, the headline one, and the first one, is about um, security, so security of supply, uh, but it's also about solidarity and trust, and it, that touches on one of the... And my second apology is I hope my voice is going to make it to the end of this as well. But the, um, the second one, you know, that solidarity and trust is about the member states and that kind of tension that happens at, within the European Union of the member states um, you know, individually and particularly in energy being very uh, protective of their own determination of their own mix on energy supply, uh, but also that you know, kind of trust relationship of you know, the information sharing and all around, uh, uh, and into reliability, into um, well, interconnectedness I'll come back to as well. Uh, which also leads into the second point, which is the fully integrated market and, you know, Clearly, that is hugely important in terms of when you're looking at uh, you know, both energy efficiency, but also that kind of um, 
energy, um, developing the clean energy and the therefore you know, reliability. You've got a storage capacity that comes in with interconnectedness as well as other points as well. So you know, that is the, you know, part of the um, in fully integrated market. And the current target is that each member state, every member state, will have 10% uh, you know, uh, into interconnectors uh, as part of its uh, energy supply as well. You've then got energy efficiency, and um, that clearly is that contributing to reduction of energy demand. The cleanest energy you have is the energy you don't use, as uh, the expression goes as well. Uh, and currently we have a 32.5% energy efficiency target by 2030. We can come back to the um, ambition of these targets and whether they're sufficiently ambitious uh, during the debate. <laughs> then you have decarbonizing the economy, which again is a 32% uh, energy uh, decarbonizing target by 2030 as well. And finally, as Sam said, one that's close to my heart, which is the um, research and innovation element of this. And this is about the new technologies. And inevitably, new technologies have got to play a huge part in this. I was listening to um, a debate on this yesterday and talking about you know, carbon, you know, taking carbon out of the atmosphere and how are we going to do that. And um, you know, we can't just do that through planting trees much, though we need to do planting trees. You know, there, there will be technologies that will deliver on this, but how long they're going to take, how much investment that's going to take, and uh, the importance of uh, delivering those new technologies. And that is actually written into, um, well, it's happening in the current Horizon 2020 uh, investment, uh, research program, largest research program in the world, but it is also there in the 35% target that was talked about as well, and we're looking at that being in the Horizon Europe, which is the next research program going from 2021 to 2028 and that, uh, 2027, and that um, is crucial, and my group, the Socialists and Democrats, which the Labour Party is part of at the European level, are wholeheartedly committed to the climate change agenda and indeed how were the driving force in getting that uh, target for um, the climate expenditure is a major part not just of the um, Horizon Europe programme, but then also more broadly in the ongoing multi-annual financial framework programmes, the budget programmes that are going to get going um, again after the European elections. So you've got to, you know, all of those um, elements, those five key elements that are going on within um, the Euro energy union area. It's been a long-standing ambition to have energy union across the EU. It is an ambition that is um, progress is being made on, and progress has significant progress has been made since 2015. But I think it's safe to say there is more to do as well. And again, a lot of that comes back to what I was talking about earlier around the tensions between member states' protectiveness around their energy policies and that 
uh, collaboration and cooperation that is intrinsic to the European Union, but fundamentally essential in the energy field too, if it's going to operate effectively. But it also comes back to, and Clive talked about a lot of this earlier on, um, and this is where I'm going to kind of stray out of the energy union and into some other points, which is um, the point that was made about just transition. And basically, this is also a wider point about getting our citizens buy-in to these policies and to this agenda, but getting them not just bought into it, but also recognizing the role of the European Union in delivering this agenda as well. Um, I think there's quite well established, but there is much more that we need to do. And talking, you know, again, we were talking about the fossil fuels and that move um, away from fossil fuels and the just transition around jobs and that side of things. So you've got that focus. And actually, the European Union has been doing that in different ways for a long time. Uh, my former colleague, well, colleague still, to, but is stepping down at this election, uh, Linda McEvan, uh, her background, she's a Yorkshire MEP, and, but before she became an MEP, she worked on the Coalfields Regeneration Programme. And you know, she worked a lot with the European Union because that's where the money was coming from to support the uh, transforming those communities. Now, that's... Yeah, the, the money wasn't coming from national government, and again, that's a, an issue. But actually, we've got that at a European level because we now have countries like Poland that are massively got to face up to the transition, but also they are going to have to have that support in terms of delivering the just transition. And again, that comes back to the buy-in from citizens and the involvement of citizens. But also in terms of the transition, it is also then about energy affordability. And it's about, you know, again, that kind of being part of the agenda and the package that, uh, that we're working on. But, you know, finally, on this point, it is then massively about this has to be part of our debate when it comes to those populist parties that we are dealing with and are going to be facing in these elections and going to have to be dealing with in the, um, in the next parliament. Uh, I think it was Charles who said earlier that there is a massive crossover between some of those leading populist politicians and climate change denial. And we have really got to be on the front foot. There is no seeding ground. We do not have time to seed ground, never mind you know, the politics being right for the seeding of ground. So you know, this I see as one of being, being one of those frontline issues that we have in the politics coming up. So I'm conscious I don't want to eat into all the time, because um, not least because I'm going to have to go. But there are, very quickly touching on, this has got to be um, gender, budget mainstreamed. I worked a lot in the budget area on gender mainstreaming in budgets. Climate mainstreaming has got to happen in budgets as well. It's um, you know, that accountability and that measurability and that 
you know, outcome deliverance that you can get through budgets. And that's why the MFF negotiations that are coming up in the, you know, have started, but will be, um, I hope, concluding in the autumn, who knows, uh, are, are so important that we get uh, climate action mainstreamed, and that is absolutely fundamental and core to the Socialists and Democrats and you know, work that the Labour Party is doing. We talked as well a little bit about um, the uh, ETS and indeed when that was being, the last bits of that were negotiated, there was a lot of discussion around border adjustment. It's a difficult area. It's hard to nail down as uh, Sam was rightly pointing out to me, but I think it is an unavoidable one because you cannot look at outsourcing your carbon footprint it's got to be that we are and we can't lose those industries either steel being a classic example so we've got to work at ways of tackling the fact that you know these are carbon heavy sectors and how do we deal with you know ccs is not really there carbon capture and storage is not really there yet but you know all of these technologies how do we make that work in these sectors but also how do we not avoid just you know, even if it's not dumping just because there aren't the obligations on carbon uh, in, other sect in other parts of the world that we're not then losing out um, on that area. Um, and when we are looking at this, there's also climate diplomacy, which kind of touched into the Paris Agreement. It touches into you know, its member states. You know, it's a UK thing as well as a, um, an EU thing, and it is a really, really important area in terms of uh, both the leadership role, the advocacy role, but then also actually the support role that we can play in the rest of the world because this feeds into another high-profile issue a couple of years ago but it is not an issue that's going to go away, which is we are going to see much more migration as a consequence of climate change, and consequently we therefore have this role to play in the world as, as well. Um, and finally, and I would say this because I'm Vice Chair of the Security and Defence Committee as well, there is the geopolitical environment that we're operating into and you know just in the last 24 hours developments on Nord Stream 2 and the regulatory framework around that uh, and uh, I think the the parliament and the commission are working in um, a greater concert on this than, <laughs> than some of our member states and it's some of the member states so you know the geopolitics of our energy supply is really crucial as well and again that that naturally feeds into that, you know, creating our own um, renewable depend, you know, uh, uh, supply and development going forwards. So that was a lot that I kind of skimmed over the surface of in uh, introductory remarks. But um, thank you very much and thank you for the day. Actually, it's very interesting. Thank, thank you. you very much. Um, Lisa, so, so Lisa, to introduce you, is, is a senior, let me just get the title just right, Senior Policy Advisor at E3G, a group that I actually know quite well from, from a former life and I think are excellent. And I'm very interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Do I need to press anywhere now? Okay. Great. <laughs> Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I also think it's an excellent discussion to date, so looking forward to that and hoping I can live up to your <laughs> expectations. Um, um, I wanted to start with a hypothesis that we've already heard this morning, just to explain the context before I get to 
to two points um, about really what we need to do differently going forward. What, what's next? Not that everything was wrong in the past, but we need to shift, shift gears. Um, the hypothesis being, we've done the easy bits in Europe and the energy union, uh, but getting the next bit is not only difficult, but <laughs> or more difficult, but it's also uh, getting the next bit right is not only um, difficult, but it's vital. Uh, we've done quite a comprehensive reform of the electricity sector in Europe with the clean energy pack package to support decarbonisation. But we had lots of tailwinds when that happened. I think politically we had falling costs of renewables. We had the decoupling of emissions and, and energy intensity from growth. Um, but now we're entering a next sort of phase of decarbonisation. And um, we need to reflect that in how we think about our systems uh, and policy making. Uh, most importantly, policymakers need to be braver, um, not only catching up with what's happening in the world, but actually driving it. Um, we've we've, we've uh, mentioned already the Euro European Commission's uh, proposed um, strategy for climate neutrality by 2050. Uh, that means we're not only changing the way we generate electricity, we're really looking at radical e efficiency, electrification, um, but also transforming the way we heat our houses, uh, industry works. We've talked about that. Um, this is, of course, really difficult in a climate of political fragmentation that we've also talked about already. Being brave is much harder if you're managing a very unstable coalition government. Um, so we need to think really about what is there to gain uh, for us as Europe. Um, we've, we've mentioned global competitiveness. We've mentioned a socially smooth transition, and we had a question about European cohesion. I, I think that's how I interpreted it. It's about Northwestern Europe going ahead with this, um, but Eastern Europe or certain regions being left behind. So this is actually a question that's quite vital to European integration, and I think we need to understand it and frame it like that. What does that all mean? Um, I think if I were to choose two priorities, uh, I think it means, means two things. One is we need to think about our systems and institutions and are they ready to deliver something as comprehensive and cross-sectoral uh, as we're looking at um, for the next phase of decarbonisation. And the second is precisely that one of is there an eco economic and social opportunity for everybody um, and can we stop talking about what I call net aggregate figures of jobs because I don't think anyone identifies with them. Um, so to talk a bit more about the first one... Um, 2050 is a long time horizon. There will be a lot of uncertainty built into the system. There's lots of different pathways of getting to climate neutrality, if we accept that's where we're going to get to, but I'll park that for now. Um, but if I look at our institutions, do we really have the right institutions to deliver climate as a priority? For example, in the Commission, we have, of course, DG Klima, but I'd be interested to hear from Alina. Is this the, the setup? Would it work to deliver sort of decarbonization of heat and industry? Uh, some of the really social questions. Does DG Klima have sort of the leverage across um, to develop the policies? Um, we've talked about foreign policy as well, very important. Um, do we have the conversations, the data, the models to design such a very integrated energy system, which is about heat infrastructure, gas infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, different sources of security, different sources of supply, energy efficiency. It's all very different matters handled at very different governance levels as well. Some of them are very decentralized. Some of them are actually very centralized, like big import pipelines. Um, 
So I think actually we have an opportunity here as well with the new commission coming in. We can think about system design and, and how we frame questions. And just to give you an example, and because it's in my comfort zone, I work a lot on the future of gas. I'm going to talk about the future of gas. Um, if we look at the um, 2050 vision proposed by the European Commission, um, this would have major consequences for natural gas as it is. Uh, it would represent about 3 to 4% of, uh, final energy, of, of Europe's energy consumption by 2050 if we went for the 1.5 pathways. Currently, it's at about 20%. So that's a radical transformation of our infrastructure, um, of potentially houses. Gas is used a lot in heating houses, uh, but also of our industry. Um, so how are we going to get there? We know an endpoint, a rough endpoint, but how we, the transition is really from A to B is really the politically difficult question. And that means... We can't only look at energy in isolation because the gas question is one of foreign policy, very much so. Russia is, of course, the big elephant in the room here, but not only, also the Georgia, Azerbaijan, um, the Eastern Mediterranean. What do we have, to, what, what do we have on offer for them, um, not only in sort of selling more of the... sort of there's something about facing out the fossil, but also we need... What, what is the positive story we have to, on offer for them in terms of our future diplomacy? Uh, what's the sort of jobs, the political gains in there for, for our strategic partners? Um, but also in how we plan infrastructure, we're still having the same process for defining priority cross-border infrastructure in Europe. That's not aligned with, with this vision, this future I've just outlined. It's, it's largely selecting gas infrastructure. It's, it's very bad at selecting smart grids, digital, digital small-scale decentralized infrastructure. Um, but also, we talked about finance. I think it's also about monetary policy um, because there's quite a lot of systemic risk built in. And then, um, to get to the second point, ensuring an opportunity for all in Europe, I think we talked a lot about the East-West uh, divide, and I think Europe needs to think about uh, a lot of diplomatic tools and, and financial support and really scaling that up to... Um, help Eastern European countries and Southern European countries see actually an economic and social opportunity in the transition. But just going beyond that, it's not only about East-West, it's also, I mean, in Germany, I think most of the combustion engine manufacturing is actually in one region. It's not all across Germany, it's in one region. So do we have the maps that tell us those stories? Are we ready not to repeat the same lignite coal phase-out, last-minute, quite expensive deal? <laughs> um, do we have that sort of anticipation for the next transition ahead, which is in the automotive sector, Spain, um, a lot of the sort of combustion engine manufacturing is in Spain. Have we, have we started thinking about that? But it's also about um, climate risk. Um, most of the impacts from climate change will be in southern and eastern Europe. Um, at the moment, this is a conversation that's live at regional level, not at national level. How can we help? get that conversation, get to the national level, so it actually feeds back into the, oh, we need to do more mitigation because it's a way of preventing the climate change impacts um, or making our energy systems more resilient. Um, but it's also about quality of jobs. I think that, the, and I just, going back to the line I said, I always read, oh, we've created 4 million jobs and they're better quality than before or something like that in, in lots of the communications. 4 million jobs, first, where? And who is it the people who lost their jobs previously? No, it's different. It's probably different people. Um, 
and the jobs are different. We will see more jobs in the services industry. That's not union, not, not unionized to the same, same extent as, as sort of mining jobs are. So the, the working conditions are much poorer. Do we have an answer to this? Um, this is, and this is going back, loops back to we need to think about structures because it's a question of the climate question also, or DG Klima also working with those um, working on working conditions across Europe, social policy, um, and the like. So um, I'm going to wrap up here on the overall question. I think we were asked to talk about Brexit, but I can... If I, have, I don't know if I have time, so I can park that for later. But. I think, yes, we, I, I'm very yeah. interested to hear your views on Brexit, but maybe if we park yeah. that and yeah. come to it in the question. And thank you. So ne next we have uh, Justine. Just, I want to make sure I pronounce it. Justine. Perfect. Justine, <laughs> who, I, who I know has thought quite a lot about sort of the regulatory environment, market structures, and I've, I, I, I've, when I was looking at your profile, I've seen as have advised on quite a few cases to do uh, with energy around Europe. Yep and the like, and I'm very interested to hear what you've got to say. Well, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here today. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, obviously, the clean energy package looming large and, uh, and lots of other reforms uh, uh, coming down the track as well. I, it's, uh, as, a, as an economist specializing in the energy sector and also with some involvement uh, in European and UK uh, energy uh, market reform and regulation, um, I think uh, sort of I would need to sort of highlight that obviously we have come a long way uh, since the first liberalization packages uh, that were adopted in the late 1990s. Uh, three successive packages of directives and regulations obviously have built a more harmonized uh, internal market for electricity and gas, and also it has fostered more competition, and uh, that has been introduced successfully along the way. And of course, in this period as well, in the last 20 years or so, security supply and environmental objectives have also risen, of course, up the agenda. Uh, Indeed, one of the lessons, I guess, if I were to sort of think of it this way, uh, from the electricity industry kind of reform process altogether over this period, um, I would say that uh, the competitive markets alone don't deliver uh, reliable and diverse energy sources or supplies. They don't um, naturally you know, lower emissions spontaneously, and obviously end-user prices you know, will be what they'll be uh, in, a, in a competitive market as costs are passed through to the consumer. So alongside competitive markets, there therefore needs to also be strong political commitment to a transition to a renewable energy sources, of course, um, in order to meet users' uh, heating, electricity, transport demands, and so forth. Now, so how can then Europe develop an infrastructure and uh, the regulatory measures needed to complete the clean energy union? Well, I'd say that uh, the sort of overarching point would be that European institutions, a bit like the previous speaker, member states, and of course their national regulatory authorities, they have to develop credible and transparent um, policies and regulations that will enable the industry uh, to deliver the energy transition uh, in a flexible and proportionate way, and in a way that minimizes costs to consumers as well as disruption. I think these are sort of critical uh, aspects of achieving a successful energy transition. So this then, in turn, requires that policies and regulations at the national and at the European level uh, is contained within an integrated framework where innovative solutions can be developed and implemented, and uh, in a way that doesn't uh, leave us with a plethora of uncoordinated systems 
um, that, and obviously potentially uh, wasteful uh, public investment as well. And without this integrated policy framework, economies of scale and scope might not be realized. The costs and risks uh, to suppliers and end users in one market or country may then be increased by the policies, inadvertent or otherwise, uh, of policymakers or regulators in adjacent markets or countries. And of course, this could also then lead to higher greenhouse gas emissions than otherwise would be the case at higher costs and with less reliability and availability of energy. So altogether, there's a lot to play for. Um, and an example of this, in fact, this is not just an economist thinking, you know, w doing what-ifs. Um, as an example of this, we actually we have the case of LNG regasification or import capacity, which, if you look in hindsight, um, this has arguably been a very expensive and excessive development of LNG import capacity, given the poor utilization of those assets that we see today. Of course, given the political implications of relying heavily on Russian um, uh, gas supplies, clearly a number of European countries have favored diversifying their supply sources and uh, with uh, recourse to LNG. And there are today roughly around 28 or so large-scale LNG terminals that together will cover 40% of European demand for gas. Um, now, at the same time, further terminals are also being approved or are in the course of construction. And with a historic utilization rate of around 20%, um, obviously regasification capacity is not going to be a limiting factor for the use of LNG in the future. There are going to be other factors, like, for example, the price differential between LNG and piped gas that will be uh, determinative of that as well. And so the, in, the low level of utilization of LNG capacity as an example of, let's say, low utilization and wasteful investment in infrastructure in the energy sector more generally, puts, um, gives rise to a significant risk to the European energy transition. Because um, if there isn't, if you like, coordinated investment, if there isn't, um, if there's wasteful investment, then clearly the uh, investments, they're, if they're not sufficiently well tar uh, integrated, um, this will then you know, result in falling utilization, higher cost to consumers, and overall, this would then potentially could be driven to the point where infrastructure becomes unaffordable. Um, we see that in some countries where policymakers are clearly concerned about this. And the consequence of that potentially then could be that end users or businesses then try to uh, avoid the fixed costs associated with paying for all these assets um, and bypassing what otherwise would be fully, uh, completely serviceable or uh, usable uh, energy infrastructure is obviously wasteful, as it could increase the overall system costs and it would have potentially very um, uh, bad consequences for vulnerable consumers who are then not able to bypass uh, these costs and to adopt different sources of energy. On the other hand, uh, uh, adopting a rigid and um, centrally planned approach to infrastructure um, uh, would, you know, taken to the extreme, could also frustrate the development of innovative solutions that then drive down costs. And so, therefore, there is this sort of uh, balancing act to be struck between having flexibility on the one hand in the development of regulations and at the same time having the necessary degree of system planning and integration uh, uh, overall. And doing all of this whilst then diversifying supplies, in encouraging competition, driving down costs, that is a major challenge, alongside, obviously, the question of, you know, which pathway and so on do we take. 
So I would then suggest there's sort of three, uh, possibly four kind of areas to focus on. One is reform of market design. Um, enabling new models of infrastructure access by new service providers. Thirdly, harmonizing infrastructure access tariffs and charges, charging. And finally, also providing stronger incentives on network providers, in particular transmission system operators, the national grids, if you like, for electricity and gas, to develop the innovative solutions necessary to reduce overall system costs. Specifically with regard to market design, I'd say that um, uh, Obviously, the precise options, the precise configuration of the market will be left to Euro, you know, European member states or national governments. And that is as it should be, uh, because obviously these market designs, you know, in terms of how much retail, what kind of wholesale market competition, for example, to have, uh, how much of what kind of cross-border solutions should be adopted, these are all things that need to be decided upon in the context of the natural resource endowments of those countries and obviously any, any number of other political and uh, regulatory and other cultural aspects in, that are present in those countries. However, that being said, uh, electricity markets, in, in order for them to function effectively you and on a competitive basis, which is crucial to keeping costs down, there are couple of elements that need to be in place at a European level. The first would then be a competitive framework for the supply of energy as well as capacity and storage and balancing service, all those sort of uh, uh, that, that collection of services and products and contracts um, that then together allow uh, the markets to, to balance and to uh, uh, operate efficiently. And to do this, you would then need to have some kind of national or possibly some regional cross-border designated authority that would then be responsible for identifying the, the needs or the requirements for cross-border capacity and trading uh, in accordance with demand outlooks at the time. Secondly, uh, with these auctions in, in mind for you know, procuring uh, the requisite energy, capacity, services, and so forth, these, uh, these auctions for these services would need to be um, competitively tendered. There potentially then would be bids for those. Um, and of course, these sh they should be as much as possible technology neutral, uh, subject to, of course, the, um, the, the sources of supply, for example, being low carbon or renewable. Thirdly, it'll be important to continue to promote the development of spot markets, effective trading, um, day ahead, forward markets, etc. Um, and uh, because of the, the sort of bottlenecks and the resource constraints, it will also be necessary in order to ensure that um, there is at least flexibility to have different pricing zones across Europe, even within countries that we have today, in order to economize on costs overall. So those are the sort of some of the key elements around market design. Obviously, in relation to that, then you'd have to have continued competition and effective state aid enforcement in order to have all this work um, effectively. And then coming to the role of TSOs or network operators, um, a couple of things to, to point out here. Um, first thing would be to highlight that given the transition and given the, given the sort of challenges of selecting a pathway or at least having a few options in reserve for, for which pathway to, to take and to manage all the uncertainty and the complexity of you know, phasing in the right investments at the right time in the right place and so on, Obviously, this means that TSOs will have duties and the, their tasks will become increasingly complex in terms of the trade-off between quality of service, cost, 
and, uh, and, uh, and, and other sort of factors or desirable features of these, uh, these, uh, these different uh, infrastructures. And alongside that, they then have to develop the tools and techniques to handle, for example, digitalization of their networks and to sort of accommodate the decentralization trend that we are in the midst of as well. And so given all this uncertainty, um, uh, as much as these uh, TSOs are generally regulated on the basis that they recover their costs um, with, a, with, a, with a reasonable rate of return, um, there is, given the sort of potential for wasteful investment, there is, I guess, in, uh, in my view, an increasing opportunity to explore alternative risk-reward risk trade-offs, essentially, for investors. So rather than having all of the assets always going into a regulatory asset base um, and being depreciated and earning a utility rate of return, there is the potential then for actors to, or investors to take part in investments that potentially would be subject to some uncertainty either on demand or utilization, and that uh, possibly they would need a higher rate of return for that. But I think that ultimately, given the prospects for stranding of those assets long term, is much greater in the context of an energy transition and an ambitious one at that, uh, that potentially is something that is worthwhile considering. So in summary, given that the, the fossil fuels and the technologies that Europe has utilized and exploited um, for, well, I guess centuries, the transition to a, a, a low-carbon economy and a carbon-free energy system is no longer evolution. It's, uh, it's actually more revolution now. Um, and even a few years ago, the European Commission's energy roadmap, uh, they obviously, uh, that obviously set out uh, that there would be substantially more electricity, more renewable electricity, and that would be then uh, a key pillar for the delivery of, a, of the energy transition. But as some of the other uh, previous speakers and some of the commentary in the past panel, uh, previous panel as well has highlighted is that there is still the potential for a role for gas in some form, uh, and uh, again, utilization of those same infrastructures, particularly if they're tra transporting biomethane or, or other renewable gases or indeed hydrogen. And uh, I think the thing which has really changed really in the last few years, and as per the events recently here in London and elsewhere, um, obviously there is a sense of urgency. And I guess, um, uh, you know, uh, many, many, in, many of the, um, much of the public's opinion, I guess, has, uh, is sensing this urgency and also has a sense of expectation around the Paris Agreement and being able to fulfill, if you like, the energy transition uh, quickly. Now, we can all discuss, you know, what is a reasonable time frame and what is feasible by when, but I guess ultimately, regardless of the timing and regardless of the precise pathway that uh, Europe or member states choose, there would need to be an, uh, an emphasis on the regulatory and policy aspects, particularly on market design, as I said, and also network uh, tariff harmonization, infrastructure access, and stronger incentives for network operators. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to open the floor to questions in a second, but I just want to come back to Lisa because I know you have done some thinking as to how does the UK plug into this all after Brexit? Is it possible to do so? Is it dependent entirely on the future relationship and the like? And I know you've got some thoughts. Sure, yeah, I'm uh, happy to comment, although I would never compete with your knowledge on, on Brexit, but... Um... I don't know anything about this. <laughs> But I think almost, I mean, a lot of it is, of course, dependent on which future relationship we'll settle on and will we be trading electricity in the same way? Will we be covered by the ETS? 
what I did want to say now, rather than going into all the different scenarios, is there, there's things irrespective of that that we should be doing, and that's, that's really finding areas of positive cooperation between the UK and the EU. And, and um, just to name a few, a few there's, there's, of course, that the overall climate cooperation under the Paris Agreement, where the UK has been a, been a leader and pretty much wants to continue to be so, they want to host the next uh, climate conference. There's something around long-term planning, where the UK holds a lot of expertise through the Committee on Climate Change and Institutional Design, which I think is more and more uh, in demand in Europe. So I think creating those uh, diplomatic relationships and exchange of best practice um, and intensifying this is very important. A second one is um, the, the, the development of offshore renewables and uh, the North Sea grid. Of course, that's quite dependent on how we're going to trade electricity, but I think in the medium to longer term, this is something where the UK and the EU really need to cooperate to maximize the, the offshore wind potential that's out there. Um, but then it's also finding areas of cooperation um, where especially the UK actually hosts sort of cu cutting edge technologies be it, uh, and research cap uh, capability, uh, in particular in artificial intelligence, where I think that Europe is, is very keen to continue uh, the cooperation and where the EU has a lot to offer and which is, which is quite um, fundamental to the energy transition if we think about uh, optimal use of our energy uh, in the system. So we really need to make best use of, of um, our knowledge there. So these are, just to name a few, a few areas where I think we can build those, these cooperation infrastructures now, basically, be, between the EU and the UK, irrespective of whether we're ending in a Norway plus customs union, single market, whatever um, relationship. Thank you. So, Justine, my, my, my question for you is because I really appreciated that you sort of laid out some sort of four concrete proposals. And, and in the sense of what's been happening around here over the last week, I, I feel the sense of urgency has started to sink in. And I know my fear with climate change has always been this assumption that we just, or we all assume it's linear that just it gradually goes up. And I always worry that there's an inflection point where actually trajectory <coughs> changes and things get worse much quicker. So my, my question for you, and this is probably a big one, is you've laid out, I think, some proposals that could help in the context of the energy union. Would these be sufficient by 2050? And could it be done quicker by 2025? And what would need to happen? What would government actually need to do? What would the EU need to do to make it happen at that pace? OK, so 2025, I think, is... I think it's just not practical. Um, the, um, I've, uh, 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 in, in previous engagements with clients, we've worked with Ofgem, for example, to, de to develop you know, different kinds of tariff structures for distribution system operators. And the process for developing new, di new or different tariff structures and changing policies of, or regulations of that kind um, are, is painstaking, detailed work, and takes a long time to deliver. Um, and I think, the, you know, as much as it would be physically possible, uh, let's say, uh, to uh, to deliver a lot of investment very quickly, uh, I think there is just a, there is a necessary, let's say, regulate set of regulatory arrangements that would need to evolve as well. And that is something that uh, potentially would then uh, take take longer than what we would be really able to do within. Uh, you know, uh, five to six year time frame and so on. So I don't think 2025 is, is, is a realistic, uh, let's say, objective. 
but I think you know I think it's important to start and to have a consistent uh, uh, make consistent progress and to try and make it as linear and as sort of predictable as possible and to follow a few sort of core principles um, for good regulatory and policy design um, and to have an endpoint in uh, in mind uh, and to have that uh, understood and communicated more widely in terms of what those benefits are. And of course, once you get started in that way, in a deliberate and, uh, let's say, methodical fashion, uh, where industry and stakeholders of all kinds can then have, uh, let's say, get behind it, as it were, and uh, to see the, see the direction of travel, then obviously uh, it's, it's possible that it would be deliverable before, say, 2050. Uh, but uh, exactly how soon and so on obviously depends on the steps that are taken now. I've heard it said that uh, we sometimes, if I get this the right way around, we sometimes overestimate what we can achieve in two to three years' time, five years' time in this case, I'd say, but we possibly underestimate what we can achieve in, say, ten years' time. And so I think uh, it might not be capable of being completed within five years, but certainly within 20 or 30, uh, it would stand to reason that there is a reasonable chance of hitting that goal. It sounds very much like Brexit. Um, <laughs> thank you very much.